For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Most of you all know the drill. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and take it out. For those of you who are visiting with us, again, welcome. Um, we, we find it important at Holy Cross to not just kind of um, believe that you're here to be entertained, but that we're active participants in worship, that we, it's, though, though I'm going to be the one speaking for the next 35 or so minutes, that I know, because I've been where you're, you're at, that as the person up front is speaking, you've got questions, right? You've got things you're thinking about. Now, maybe those are questions about what I'm saying, and maybe those are questions about what's for lunch, but there's still questions. Like, there, there's a conversation in some degree going on. And what that means is, is that we believe that it's really good for you if you've got the scriptures in front of you, so that you can, as you have those questions, see that I'm just not making stuff up. Because if I'm making stuff up, I shouldn't be up here. If I'm just telling stories to warm your heart, but not engaging with God's word that's powerful to change your life, then we're all wasting our time, okay? So the, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship, okay, that, that little bulletin thing, we have it there. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table. Today's the day to grab one, okay? We want, that, we want you to take it. It's really, it's really important to us that you have one. Uh, any way that you can have it in front of you, though, uh, grab it now, all right? Now. You know what it is that I love about the Advent season? And I say the Advent season because whether or not we know this, uh, the Christmas season actually begins on Christmas, uh, not on Black Friday. So uh, the Christmas season begins on Christmas. We are currently in the season of Advent. Uh, anyway, what, what I love about the Advent season is that all of our culture enters in, at least in part, to Christian hope. Because if you listen close, if you listen close... During this time, you hear the longings of humanity. And you can hear them even in the 24-hour Christmas radio stations. And by that, I don't just mean like when, it play, when they play the Christian Christmas songs. I mean when they play Christmas songs. I'm talking about the ones that paint an idyllic picture of a winter wonderland. Where everything's right with the world. Or where our desires are met by some otherworldly being coming and uh, blessing us, and who is eager to do so. Uh, the longings where we come home for Christmas, and when we do, we find their love and peace and hope. Those are real longings. And the fact that right now, as we enter into this time, we speak to those longings says something about what Christianity says to the world. Because it speaks into the longings that are human. And not just parochial ones about what we think things should be like. And so if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, what I want to do is I want to invite you right now uh, to simply overhear, if you will, where we believe these longings come from, because we all have them, 
and the hope that we believe is held out for all of the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to actually see these longings met. So this morning, our passage is from uh, the book of Micah, which is in the Old Testament. Best way to get there, if you, if you haven't found your way and you're in your Bible, is to start at the New Testament and go to the left, because it's one of the minor prophets, and you'll, you'll find him uh, right after the book of Jonah. Uh, many people are aware of Jonah, so you, you could find your place from there. Um, if, you hit, if you hit Jonah, you've gone too far, so go back. So we're in Micah chapter 5 this morning. If you'd stand, that's our practice here uh, in honor of God's word. I'm jumping a little bit into the middle of this passage, but I trust that some of you, not all of you, but some of you uh, who have at least some kind of history with church, and this is the time of year where many of us who are in this place do, because many of us, even if we haven't gone to church our whole lives, found ourselves for some reason there in Christmas and Easter. Uh, And so this passage maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not. In either case, I would invite you to hear it again as if for the first time. This is God's word. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are our peace. Many of us have come into this room this morning with torrents in our own hearts and chaos brewing, whether that's from what's going on in our lives or just from the confusion of being here. We need you to be our peace. Some of us here are uh, struggling to know what to do with you, struggling to know what to do with the idea of a God. We need you to be our peace. And some of us are here eager to hear from you, but all the time uh, wondering whether you'll speak, and so we need you to be our peace. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our hearts, open our ears that we might hear and our eyes that we might see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And speak. Speak now for your servants who are listening. Preach your gospel to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Some of you will know this because you have been in positions where you've had to do this. But the first thing that we do when, uh, when you need to hire somebody, generally, is you figure out what they're going to do, right? You don't hire someone and not have some kind of description of what that position is going to be. We call that position descriptions or what, whatever. And that kind of document clearly articulates the need that you have in your workplace and also begins to set the parameters for the kind of person that's going to be necessary to fill that role. That makes sense, right? Without a description, without a description of what you're supposed to do, it's, uh, you're like throwing darts with no dartboard. If you're throwing darts with no dartboard and you're not really sure where you're throwing them, eventually somebody's going to get hurt, right? 
And so we have to figure out what is the role that needs to be filled. And that's what this text this morning speaks to. Last week, we looked at the, the promise of the king. Some of you are here for that. You remember that? The promise that, um, that God promised David that he was going to raise up a king that would, that w- whose reign would be eternal. Um, this passage, this week, is looking at what, what exactly the hopes were for this king. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? So we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning. We're going to look for uh, unlooked for blessings. Or sorry, uh, unlooked for beginnings. Um, unaccounted for, unaccounted blessings and unmitigated hopes. Let me try that again. We're going to look for un, unlooked for beginnings, unaccounted blessings and unmitigated hopes. And what we're going to find is this. Uh, that Jesus... The role that he fills is that he is God's answer for the deepest longings of our souls. He is the answer. He is God's answer for the deepest longings of our souls. So let's, let's take a look at this and see if we can, we can tease that out, shall we? Um, let's look first at unlooked for beginnings. Look down at the beginning of verse 2. God declares this through this, this guy named Micah. We're going to get to him in a second. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel. Now, if we're going to get to what exactly this means, we need to back up a little bit and get some context. So Micah, this guy named Micah who, who wrote this book, is a prophet. Okay, Prophets, I know uh, for most of us, prophet is akin to fortune teller. Right? That is not what a biblical prophet is. A biblical prophet, more often than not, was more like an attorney than a fortune teller. So those of you who are lawyers can, yes, just vindication. Uh, but, but they were more like attorneys. But every once in a while, they would speak about what is coming. God's promise to make things right. And he is, uh, Micah is prophesying. He's doing his ministry during the 8th century B.C. Okay? BC. So that's like the 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 uh, the latter part of the 700s BC. Okay, and so here's what's going on during that time. At this point in its history, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. Okay, that happened because of this king by the name of Rehoboam. Um, mm, he blew it. Uh, didn't listen to the right people. Okay, you can you can look up that story later. Didn't listen to the right people. So God split the kingdom from him. The northern part of the kingdom was called Israel. The, the southern part was called Judah. Israel was, ten, you know, uh, the whole nation of Israel was 12 tribes, right? So the northern part was 10 of them. The southern part was two of them. Okay, so what has happened during this time is that in 722 B.C., Israel, the northern tribes, those 10 northern tribes, were attacked by the nation of Assyria and taken into exile, okay? And this was not just a geopolitical uh, conflict. This, in fact, was God's uh, discipline on his people because they had abandoned him from the start. They had abandoned him from the start of that split. Judah hadn't so much. However, after the, that, uh, the kingdom of Assyria had taken Israel into exile, they decided, hey, why not Judah too? And they started marching on Judah. So in 701 BC, the, the Assyrian king, this dude by the name of Sennacherib, he decided Judah's going to be next, and he marched on Jerusalem. And as he's marching on Jerusalem, he's raising all of the territory around him. So why don't you imagine for a second. Micah is speaking either right before this is happening or right as it's happening. More than likely, right as this is happening. And so you're living in Jerusalem, which is where Micah was prophesying. 
And you're watching the world's mightiest army do whatever it pleases to your little minuscule defenses. As if the great forces of history are just too much for you and your little meager efforts to solve. You ever feel that way? Ever feel that your best just shows how insignificant you are? If you haven't, you're probably just not old enough yet. Right? God tells them, though, right there in, those first, in that first verse that we looked at, verse 2, that the smallness, that the, their insignificance does not equate to unimportance, and especially not to God. God's ruler, who we saw last week, right, is to be the king, not just of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. The king of the whole world is going to come from this little bitty town in this forgotten little dust bowl that's now under assault by the mightiest army in the world. God's ruler of all the world. Which means that God tends to upend our images of importance and value. But this is based on the power of his promise. Look at the end of the verse. He says, he's talking about this king, and he says, whose origins are from of old, of ancient times. Okay? So we're talking about this promised king, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about this guy. So when we're talking about someone whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, this could mean that this king is really, really old, maybe even pre-existent. That's the way some in the church have taken it. But more likely than not, that's not what this is talking about. Um, more likely, when you take it with the reference to Bethlehem, because you see, Bethlehem was a pretty famous town in Israel, and not because, of this, not because of this prophecy, but because of somebody else who came from Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is called the city of David. David was kind of a big deal. He was kind of a big deal, a king in Israel. And so, uh, this is likely a reference to the promise that God made to David. Remember that? We looked at that last week. We heard that, that God had promised David that from his family, the seed from his own body, from, from there would come one who would rule forever. Not just, not just a long time, but like forever. That God will once again draw his king, the one after his own heart, from the town of Bethlehem because he promised to. Now here's why that matters. Here's why this matters. So listen close. God does what he does and God will do what he will do because of the promise that he initiated and made. In other words, what's going on in this passage is the declaration that, that it, this is not going to happen because Israel worked hard to indebt God to them. You cannot indebt God to you. Okay? Think about that. Think about this for a second. The Bible teaches that God owns everything. Everything. Even the breath in your lungs. That breath that you just took. And that one. That's because God is doing it. Like, he's the one who is active, giving life to us. How can you indebt someone to you who already owns everything that you have? The notion of indebting God to you doing something that then makes God do something for you, which is basically the way all of us by nature think, that isn't Christian at all. In fact, it's, it's called magic. Like, doing something to make the deity do something for you is called magic. Like that, that's the basis of pagan magic. God does what he does because he determines to. 
God does what he does out of grace towards us. Not because there is anything that you or I could do to make him do it. Let me say that again, because that's really, I I really want us to get that. And some of you are like, Greg, I already get this, but do you? There is nothing that you can do to make God do things for you. Some of you are like, but but what about like, you know, having a good quiet time and coming to worship and write my check? Well done. Those are good things. They're just not going to make God do anything for you. God's not a Coke machine, right? Where you put in your quarter and press your button and get your blessing. It's not the way God works. God does what he does because he promises to do it. And in this passage, he's keeping his covenant, his promise, because that is the kind of God that he is. Now, these unlooked-for beginnings give way to three blessings, some unaccounted blessings. Look first at verse 3, as we see drawing home the exile. It says, Israel will be abandoned until she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now, that's confusing until you, again, understand what's going on. The, the city of Jerusalem, the, the, Judah, has watched their northern family, um, though estranged, their family, go into exile. And they knew, because they read their Bibles, that God had actually promised that, like, exile is going to happen. In fact, uh, this theme of exile kind of runs throughout the scriptures. Um, Think with me of the first place it comes, which is in the garden. Some of you are familiar with that story, right? Adam and Eve, made in the garden, do well. And then, uh, but then things don't go well. Like, they break relationship with God. And when they break relationship with God, they are exiled. And exile was always meant to be a corrective. Here's why. Here's why. Because that can seem weird. Like, isn't this just punitive? No, 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 it's corrective. But here's why. The Bible teaches us that we were made for God. And so to be apart from him, to be exiled from him, is to be apart from our heart's true home. This is why you and I struggle finding satisfaction, why our hearts are restless. It's because we're alienated from God. And so what exile is meant to do is to press this home, because it is done in response to the fact that we've already turned away from him, we've already gone apart from him, we already want to be apart from him, so he gives us what we want, so that something in our souls goes, I can't find satisfaction. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, that if I find in my heart a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is, I must have been made for another world. That's what exile is supposed to, to convince us of. And so the northern tribes, Israel had already gone into exile, and in about 150 years from when, when Micah said these words, Judah will as well. But we weren't meant for exile. We weren't made for that. And this is why one of the promises linked to the coming king is that he will come to draw his people back. To bring them home. Exile comes because we betray God. So if exile is over, that means that our betrayal has been dealt with. The king comes to bring our exile to an end. To bring us home for Christmas. Then comes the promise of provision. Look at verse 4. It says he will shepherd his people. Now this is a pregnant image because the, the, 
the first uh, real king of, of Israel, the first one who had kind of united everybody, was David. And David is, of course, known to be a shepherd. And so kingship and shepherding were always kind of brought together in Jewish thought. Okay, so, so the fact that he's going to shepherd his people means he's going to take care of them. He's going to give them security, it says. And so, in other words, they're not going to be vulnerable anymore. Can you imagine that? They're not going to be vulnerable. There's no way that they can be harmed. The, this mighty Assyrian army is going to be nothing. They're going to be completely provided for. Did you see that? That he's going to, he's going to provide for them, just like a shepherd provides and protects his sheep. And he's going to do this, it says, by the strength and the majesty of the Lord. And what this means is it means in the, the Lord's authority. So here's what, here's what this means. We draw all these things together. This dude is going to be the representative of God before them. Okay? He's going to guard them so that they are secure. And his greatness will spread to the ends of the earth. You see, it isn't simply that this king that was promised will keep Israel safe and her enemies kept at bay. The promise is that there will no longer be any enemies. It isn't just that, hey, I'm going I'm to raise up this king and he's going to take over this little sliver of land in the Near East and then, you know, all of your enemies won't dare touch you. No, no, no. It's that there aren't going to be any enemies any longer. His kingdom is not a parochial one. It will extend across the globe. This awaited king will actually see the kingdom, the kingdom of God spread across the world. Lastly, though, the last promise is that he's going to establish our peace. Look at the beginning of verse 5. It says, and he will be their peace. Now, again, to someone who's looking over the walls of Jerusalem at the army of Sennacherib encamped around them, uh, this is pretty incredible. But this does not just mean lack of war. You see, we often view peace as, as the cessation of something. Right? That peace is stopping conflict, which it is, in part. But biblical peace, right? the Hebrew for that is shalom. You may be familiar with that. Um, the biblical concept of shalom isn't just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of flourishing. It's the presence of, of everything that we were meant to be. It is all of our relationships, all of the relationships we have with one another, with God, with creation, even with ourselves, all coming together perfectly, without break. That is shalom. And so what this verse is talking about is that the king, the king that is coming, is going to make the world right. But not only is he going to make the world right, he himself is the rightness of the world. Evil kings aren't going to rise up again. Exile won't need to happen anymore because we won't ever think of betraying God or each other. That is shalom. That is peace. So this king has unlooked for beginnings. He brings unaccounted blessings. And this leads us finally to unmitigated hopes. Okay? Let me remind you of what I said last week. These hopes these hopes of Israel aren't just Israel's hopes. They're the hopes of everyone. They're the hopes of the world. 
So let me flesh that out in three ways. First, Israel was looking for someone to come and make things right. Someone to come and bring shalom, to bring peace. And we're no different. You see, the longing for shalom comes because we lost that. We lost our peace in the garden. When, when, when humanity turned away from God, it disjointed everything. Everything kind of came unglued. And, and, it, and it even disjointed us. Even we came unglued. And so ever since then, we have longed for someone to make things right again. And our culture today, the culture right outside of these doors, the culture that we bring within these doors with us, is driven crazy by this desire. Think about our politics. How polarized our politics are because of the belief that a political party or a politician can make us right nationally, economically, sometimes even morally. If we just get the right person in, they can do the right things, and that will turn the tide and make us right. Think about, uh, you know, it's Christmas time. Maybe you're visiting bookstores, those of you who still actually go to stores. Uh, like, you're visiting a bookstore. The self-help section of bookstores is huge. And it has exploded because of the belief that we can make ourselves right, deal with our anxieties, finally overcome that that problem that we've always had, make ourselves successful. If we can just have enough effort or someone's amazing five-step plan to success. Even our strategies of, of hiding from one another. The ways that we do that through superficiality and, and by comparing ourselves with others is simply a way to convince us that we're okay. And it doesn't work. And you know it doesn't. The claim of Advent is that the answer to this longing comes from the unexpected unexpected place of Jesus. To make the world right, to make it right again, the reason why all of those things that we look to don't work is because to make the world right again, you have to deal with what made it wrong. You have to finally deal with that. You have to deal with sin. And so that's what Jesus did. He came and and bore the judgment that our sin deserves. That's what he did on the cross. And then rising again, he forever put it away for all who put their trust in him. The flourishing that we're looking for in us and in the world doesn't come from self-help. It cannot come from politics. And it doesn't even come from hiding and pretending we're something we're not. It comes instead by admitting our brokenness and giving it to Jesus to mend. Anything else is going to fail you. Israel was also longing for someone to come and protect them and provide for them in the hostile world they were in. Right? They, uh, probably more than any of us, understood that the world was bigger than them and they couldn't protect themselves from it. And it was seemingly out of control. And so they tried to look to their own devices, right? They had an army. They, They tried that. Didn't work. They, they even looked to um, other nations, maybe other people. Maybe, uh, maybe Egypt can come help them. Not, not going to work. The armies of the world were always bigger and stronger. And we're no different because, again, this longing didn't begin in Israel. This longing began in the garden. See, it was in the garden, the place where we were perfectly provided for, perfectly protected It was in that place that we became convinced of the lie. The lie that God didn't really love us. 
doesn't have our good in mind, that he's actually holding us back. And that if we're going to see ourselves flourish, then what we're going to have to do is become independent of him. And so because the lie sprang up there, that is why we deal with it today. Guys, this is why you struggle consistently afraid that you are inadequate and want no one, whether they're at work or at home or anywhere, to figure this out. Because the world's too big for you, but you have to be enough, and you're never enough, are you? I'm not. Ladies, this is why you're afraid that no one's going to notice you and look on you with delight. We all believe that we have to fend for ourselves get for ourselves. And we know that the day will come when we are not up to the challenge. But this passage tells us that we weren't made for independence. That the promise of the coming king was that he was going to shepherd us in the strength and majesty and authority of the Lord because we were made for dependence on him. That's what we were made for. We weren't made to be able to manage the world. You want to know why you're constantly met with futility and everything? Like, I can't seem to get control of things. I can't get control of my home. I can't get control of myself. I, I can't get control of anything. Like, it's because the world is too big for you. You weren't made to be able to manage the world. We were created to look to God for our provision. This is why, friends... That even if there were some way, some way, giving the benefit of the doubt, for the sake of argument, some way that you could be perfectly moral, perfectly moral and good, but you did that apart from God, you would still show yourself to be broken. You and I were made for dependence on him, and the claim of Advent is that Jesus is God's unlikely answer to our need for protection and provision. I say unlikely. I say unlikely because a baby born in obscurity is a strange source of protection. A child whose mother wasn't even protected from the inhumanity of those willing to let a woman give birth in a cattle stall seems a strange candidate to protect, to protect and provide, provide for us. Even stranger is the fact that this same child wound up crucified by Rome for crimes that he didn't commit, something that was admitted to by the one who convicted him in the first place. I see no guilt in him, right? But the New Testament tells us that Jesus conquered our enemies, sin and evil, not by rising up. We need to get this. He didn't do this by rising up and exerting more force than they did. Jesus conquered our enemies by bearing everything they could dish out. And then rising again. He protects us from our enemies not by saying they cannot harm us at all. I mean, come on, they harmed him. Of course they can harm us. But by assuring us that they will not have the last word. In the advent of Jesus is God's clearest provision for the world. But finally, the last longing is the longing uh, for home. It comes to this notion of exile. Exile, like I said before, is about being distant, being separate from our heart's true home. From God. And you know what I mean by that, right? 
You know what that feels like? It's that nagging dissatisfaction that we can't seem to make go away. It's that sense of alienation that we can have even when in the midst of our best friends. Why don't I, these are my best friends, why don't I, why don't I feel like I fit? Why do I feel lonely? It's that feeling you get when you see the latest tragedy, like what happened at Ohio State or in Tacoma this week. And you cry out, this isn't right. And it's that constant frustration when you blow it again, like you did last week or the last minute. When you can't even seem to keep your own deeply held convictions, your own chosen morality, like, I'm just going to pick these three things, and you still blow it, right? When you start becoming the very thing that you've always hated. Every one of us on this planet have this sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's as if we have this, like, genetic memory of Eden. Like... This, this sense of, like, I know the way things are supposed to be, but they're not that way. Why? But then, when we are set with that, when we're set with the fact that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and we don't know why, we do what we do best. We create strategies to either dull this ache or seek to solve it ourselves, Right? It's like, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. And so now, I've got to figure out how to fix it. Why do you think we in this room struggle with addictions? And le- please, let's not pretend that we don't. Okay? Let's just throw that out the door. I know we look good and we clean up nice. Come on, man. Like, I know you because I know me. Why do we struggle with addictions? Whether that's addictions to sex or porn or alcohol or shopping or whatever. Why do you think we do that? It's because we want to somehow dull the reminder that we're not home. And this can do it. This can at least make me forget for a little bit. Can take it away for a little while. Why do you think some of us struggle with overachieving or workaholism? We're hoping that if we work hard enough, we can get back to where we belong. Where where, Where we have all that we long for. But all the time, even in the midst of it, knowing there's something wrong with me and I can't seem to get there. Why do you think some of us struggle with moving from relationship to relationship, whether that's platonically or not platonically? We want some person to help us get rid of this sense of alienation, to make us feel loved and accepted and wanted, take away our loneliness. Someone, please, take away my loneliness. The truth is... That we feel this way, not because we feel too much, nor because we haven't achieved what we set out to to do, or that we haven't found the right person. We feel this way because we're not in the presence of the one we were made for, for God. In fact, most of us, even when I say that, are like doubly jacked up because we're like, I can't be in his presence, and I'm scared of him because of who I am. I can't possibly be in his presence and, and, and have these longings met. See, we're afraid because of the reality that forced us into exile in the first place. We're afraid because of our betrayal of him. But again, the bold claim of Advent is that our exile can only be ended in Jesus. 
He is the one who brings us back to the presence of God because he is the one who eliminates our sin. And our sin is what drove us into exile in the first place. Right? The Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, he says, he says in one of his letters that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through me. The amazing thing The amazing thing about Jesus ending our exile is that he does so not because we've worked hard enough to get his notice or because we found a way to trick him into doing it. He did this because of the promise he made to make things right solely out of his grace and out of his love for you and not because of anything you did. You are not a tool, not a tool to be used by others and not a tool to be used by God. You are someone made in his image, delightful to him, and lovely because he loved you. We are brought out of exile through faith in Christ or not at all. Let me conclude. The reality is that the other bold truth of Advent is that none of these longings are completely and fully answered even now. Advent is not simply a rearward-facing season, right? We say that here every year here. If you've been here for a while, you know that. Advent is not simply something that's looking back. Isn't it great? Jesus came, and now all of my longings can be completely fulfilled, and I can be happy all the time, right? No. Advent is a forward-looking season. Because the truth is, that in Jesus, things have been made right, but not fully and finally. Like We are out of exile, but we're still on our way to the new earth. We are protected and provided for, but pain and death still come. And this is where the power of longing comes. This season, despite everything that began on Black Friday... This season is not meant to encourage us to try and satisfy our longings with presents and traditions and eggnog. It is is meant to remind us and to sit in the fact that our longings are still unresolved longings and to look again to Jesus by faith. Listen to me. Faith is not having all of your longings completely filled. It is instead trusting that they will be met fully and finally only in Jesus. And I know that this is hard. I'm, I'm a person too. I don't know if you notice. I'm human, right? And so I'm sitting in these longings as well. And I know that it's hard and terrifying because it's the laying of your life and your hope in the hands of another. But he is the one who takes up this role. He fits the job description. He is the only one who can bring us out of our long exile, who can shepherd us in the strength of the Lord, and the only one who is our peace. Would you pray with me? Father, our God, great and mighty is your name. You are the one who calls us out of our long exile and brings us home. In and through Jesus, you have accomplished this through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And and so, Lord, I pray that you would let us 
in this season, those of us who, who know him, who know Jesus, to be able to sit in those longings and look to him by faith again. For Lord, just because we are Christians does not mean that we don't struggle to dull the pain, that we don't struggle to fill our loneliness apart from you, that we don't struggle in uh, trying to achieve to make these longings be filled. So Lord, let us, give us the grace to turn again to you. And some of us, Lord, we, we don't know you. We're here and, and we're learning, we're hearing from you. And maybe for the first time we're thinking now is the time. I pray that you would give grace and faith to turn to Jesus and to find in him our heart's true home. Lord, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. May, may we find our rest in you this morning and respond and give you back all that you've given us through our praise. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.